Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And for this podcast, we're joined by Sean Armstrong, the Managing Principal of Redwood Energy Partners out of Arcata, California. We're going to be talking about his career with zero net energy design of affordable housing. Hey, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Good to see you. Thanks, Ted. It's nice to see you, too. Thanks yeah. for having me. Well, I'm really, really pleased to have you on the show. And uh, I like to start out by asking people what they're up to today. What, what's, what's, what's been on your docket uh, today? Okay, well, the most interesting thing I think I'm working on right now is an off-grid apartment complex. So in PG&E territory in the last year, we've been declined twice hookups for affordable housing apartment complexes. Each of them a weird story. One of them is, well, all the houses nearby might be putting in secondary dwelling units. And so all the future capacities used up for your existing apartment complex here right now that you're putting in for building permits. So this really scary challenge for developing affordable housing apartments, because it seems to be kind of targeted. I'm not hearing this from other kinds of developments. It's just affordable housing. It's being declined hookups. That has meant that my uh, one of my main clients, Danco Communities, has asked me to do an off-grid apartment complex. And that will be the first time in our country that we've tried to take like 120 apartments and create a microgrid there that doesn't connect to the main grid. Uh, this will be, but it's in town. So we're gonna be having to put in maybe two and a half times as much solar panels. We're gonna be putting in a pretty large battery. So like maybe taking up four or five parking spaces worth of battery in containers. And then we're having to go through this hyper-efficiency design process of going through like a passive house envelope and getting the best Energy Star appliances and maybe some smart power strips for people, but all sorts of different efficiency efforts paired with the batteries and the solar. And then we were just looking at the data yesterday and we think that there's maybe a half a percent, maybe 1% of the year that we need to have backup power. And everyone knows, like, it's just solar and batteries. Like, what are you going to do sometimes in the winter when the weather gets really bad for, you know, weeks? Uh, what would you do? So if things go really south on us, so to speak, we are going to have a propane generator there. And we're going to try not to use it because we're going to be making a relationship with our tenants, many of whom have electric vehicles. Affordable housing tenants love EVs because it cuts their driving costs in half. And that's a big deal when you're on a limited income. So very aggressive pursuers of used EVs, uh, the affordable housing community, people who live in low-income housing. So these tenants with EVs, we're going to ask them to sell their battery electricity into the grid. And we're going to be billing, like paying them for winter electricity on these rare occasions where basically if we have 10 or 20 cars plugged in and we're using maybe 10 to 20% of the energy in those batteries, that is the last little bit we need. And those cars can go drive into town, charge up on the grid, and bring clean electricity back to us, as opposed to us having to run a propane, uh, like bring propane to the site, you know, chemical energy. One way or another, we know we're going to have to bring a little bit of energy to the site, like a half a percent. So propane generator and vehicle to building EV chargers where bi you know, bi-directional charging the building. So it's delightful. What a great project to be working on today, and obviously not just today. And tell me something: Does um, is it is it allowable to build a, a community that is not hooked up to the grid, or, or even a house these days? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, there's no law or code that says you have to be hooked up to the the grid. Just the opposite. There's a law that says the grid has to offer you services if you ask for it. It's called will serve. 
And so that's why it's so remarkable that we've been declined service for low-income housing with all these crazy, silly reasons. Oh, we just gave all of our power away to a local ice rink. Oh, we just gave all the power away on your line to a local cannabis grow indoors. Oh, it's because of the rich people housing next door and they're going to turn their garages into apartments so you can't have power now. Like Those are three real stories in one year. Yeah. So, yeah, like this off-graded situation is... It's supposed to be where the utility is required to serve you if you ask for it, but you do not have to ask for it. And in fact, it actually exempts you from the energy code. So the things that we're going to be doing, we don't have to comply with Title 24 California Energy Code, because that's only if you're grid tied. <laughs> and we're going to way past energy code for doing it off grid. But it is just to answer your question. It's the flip. We have exemptions as a consequence and, and we don't have to hook up. Well, you're really in a you're really in a tough niche, but thriving in a tough niche. Let's let's go all the way back in your life, and then we'll get into your into the zero net energy design in a big way. Born and raised where? You're a California kid, right? Oh no, I'm a farm boy from the back to the lander movement. So my parents were self sufficiency farmers in rural Wisconsin, outside of Madison, Wisconsin. And um, you know, my mom and dad grew up telling me about solar power, and I came to California because I'm queer, and uh, I was getting literally beaten in Wisconsin in the 80s and the 90s, went on for years. <laughs> and so uh, when I got into college and was still dealing with that um, in Ohio, I came to California to go for my sophomore year of college and I never went back. <laughs> That's when you came to Humboldt, right? That's when I came to Humboldt and I came here specifically because uh, I was an environmentalist starting from about 13. I started reading the New York Times every day um, since, since I was 13. So I don't know, like since 1987 nine in that era. And um, so I became a committed environmentalist when I was 13. And so when I was looking for where I was going to go to college for my next college experience after a year in Ohio, um, I, I looked at 120 catalogs and I figured out the most environmentalist college of all in our country was Humboldt State University with the, the densest number of programs around environmentalism. And there was an earth first movement here of timber protection. And I really got trained in radical activism when I came to college. How would you politely confront police if yeah. it comes down to that? And I've used those skills many times, to be honest, in face-to-face -face confrontations with gas utility executives. And when I say confrontation, I mean, it's socially awkward. I don't mean I'm threatening anybody. I mean, I'm standing there saying, no, that's not true. What you're saying is, is a false thing and you know it. You know, I'm going to that. I've gone through three vice presidents of SoCal Gas one in an official debate, you know, in front of almost 60 guys and women where they're in blue shirts from SoCal Gas to intimidate me. And I still won because I'm unintimidatable. I've gone through the whole training process. They used to pretend chase me with a chainsaw. So I was ready for the first time I actually had to be in a woods with people with chainsaws who were on the opposite side of the, of the issue. So I came to California and to Humboldt specifically to learn about how to do residential renewable energy at the Campus Center for Appropriate Technology, a demonstration house on campus since 1978, when Carter was funding these things all over the country. And it's the last demonstration house in the country that still shows you with like government funding, it's student government funding, they show you how to do it, how to put solar on the roof, wind turbines, biodiesel, pedal power, did it all. Uh, you know, set up concerts with just bicycles powering the stage. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, so that, that was my college. And I kind of struggled. I wanted to be a high school science teacher, but that didn't work out. So I went to go teach adults 
and I went to work in a development company and sort of started this zero net energy strategy for them to make more money. It was a very, I mean, basically you go down the hallway in the morning and it's hate radio on both sides. You know, it's, it's Michael Savage, it's Rush Limbaugh. It's, you know, they're just going at it on both sides of the hallway, sort of yelling at you as you go to your office. And, um, and I thrived there because all electric is cheaper to build and solar power is cheaper to operate. And we could just agree that this is a better business move. And Danco Communities, this company that, that develops affordable housing all over Northern California, um, they've been zero net energy since 2011 because it's a good business move. <laughs> you say it, you, it rolls off your it rolls off your tongue, and I believe you. I believe you, but but this has been a big problem. Is is the perception that that the cost of being zero net and the cost of being you know, highly sustainable, uh, it, there's going to be a large marginal cost. It's going to cost more than conventional construction? Well, I mean, let's be fair. The, the rebates that are available to affordable housing are different from the market rate housing, but that is how more than half of the zero net energy housing that was built in California and one in four in North America were built in affordable housing, just in our portfolio, because it is cheap enough. So all electric costs less to build. I'm not saying that it may or may not be efficient, but it is cheaper to build all electric. And you see that as the dominant construction type in the South of the United States, like Florida, 77% all electric construction. Mm-hmm. Even Arizona across the border, 45%. California, we've been confusing ourselves since about 2000 when there was an energy crisis because there was a scam that Enron ran and we had this energy electricity crisis, but it was actually a scam where they were pre- preventing gas from being delivered to California to make our electricity. And for 20 years, Californians have been separate from the rest of the country in how we've been thinking about designing. Because most of the country has got federal code and it's absolutely cheaper to build all electric according to the federal code. California's Title 24 code was deliberately designed to stop electrification because of the 2000 energy crisis. And they made it not more expensive, they just made it almost impossible. Like you could barely get an energy model to produce a code compliant report because of all the different ways they tried to stop it. So I feel like when I'm in California, I'm talking with people who have been subjected to a disinformation campaign. <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to bring the knowledge that comes from places like Florida <laughs> to the rest of the country. Hard to, to imagine that. Hard to imagine. Now, what, what makes it cheaper? Is it, okay. you don't have to pull in the gas line, actually. Yeah. That's what, important. What else? So, you know, let's start with, to $15,000 to get gas into a house. Then you do about $300 to $700 per gas using appliance. You have to deliver gas to it. And then you have to vent combustion fumes out, which is usually $700 to $1,500 to put in the duct work and the vent that goes up to the roof. That set of costs compared to putting electricity, because you already deliver electricity to every single appliance that uses gas. They always use electricity. Like you can't buy a stove today. A new stove is not for sale without an electric pilot light. Anywhere. I mean, that's seriously, I've looked. You cannot buy one anymore. Not a fancy stove, not a cheap stove. They're not for sale with active pilot lights. So new stoves come with electricity. Water heaters always come with electricity. Furnaces, the blower for blowing air around, as well as the ignition. Same with the dryer. So you've already delivered electricity to every appliance and every place that you need gas, and now you have to add money to it by adding gas. Now, the big cost of the four I just listed is the space heating and cooling system. That's all the three loads 
the water heater, the space heating system, and the stove, the cost for installing those can fit into the HVAC cost and rattle around. There's so much. So we're talking like fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars to heat and cool a new building. And if you put in a heat pump, which is a reversible air conditioner, instead of having to put in an air conditioner and a gas furnace, you put in just an air conditioner. And the gas furnace is a device that costs a thousand to two thousand dollars more than the reversible air conditioner. Uh, an air conditioner might be $1,800 for like the big ducted type for your house to, to buy it. And it's about $2,000 to buy the reversible type. But if you take an $1,800 air conditioner and you add $1,000 for a gas furnace, you can see how that is the, that's more. <laughs> it's like $1,000 more. And then it gets magnified with, with, um, with the markups. So it's like a 40 to hundred percent markup when it gets sold to you. So that $1,000 difference starts becoming a two to $3,000 difference. And you have to add combustion um, like because you're burning gas, you have to then duct that gas out from where you're burning the furnace, which you don't have to do with a reversible air conditioner, a heat pump. So you start saving in the range like five grand if you're putting in a reversible air conditioner versus an air conditioner and a gas furnace when all the costs get added up plus their markup. So that has been, um, I figured this out by reading the Propane Education Research Council's 2016 report in which they're freaking out. It's like 30 pages of freak out as they're trying to understand why propane sales have declined nationwide in the South, the North, East, West, everywhere. And there's this beautiful map they made <laughs> for them, scary, but for me, it's like, wow, where you can see almost every county in our country has been shifting to all electric construction. It has started accelerating in 2009, but it started in 1993, and no one's been talking about it until just the last few years, except people who are losing market share, like the propane companies, because propane is way more expensive than electricity going to a heat pump, no matter where you are in the country. It's always much more expensive. So, so yeah. Thanks for, so thanks for running through some of the, the basic numbers there, because, yeah. and I think, you know, you've been working on this for with affordable housing developments and the numbers are just the same, right? I mean, you, you got the exact same sort of math going on. And so does anybody disagree with you at this point? Or does everybody just say, yeah, this is, this is, the, this is the right way to be building housing? You know, the, <laughs> nobody is disagreeing right now. The, in 2016 and 17, I was involved in a lot of arguments with fellow building scientists, and all those arguments are resolved. We've done study after study after study after study showing that it is cheaper to build all electric. The Department of Energy has shown that heat pumps versus gas are lower utility bills in about three-fourths of the United States. If you add solar to an all-electric home, you have the lowest utility bills possible. Not every utility allows you to hook up solar, but so much of the country does. So yeah, it's it's a done deal. It's a resolved fact. And the natural gas industry just uh, put out like an internal memo in which they were saying, we've lost control of the narrative. <laughs> let's, so let's, let's go back in your, in your career because I was interested and I don't really understand it, but you did some work with the IRS where you were looking at sort of the split incentive that tenants pay the bills, landlords own the properties, uh, and you were able to uh, explain how you were able to get the IRS to realize that this was an issue that had to be addressed. Um, okay, so 
It, it was in 2005 when a city council required the developer, Danco Communities, to put in a solar array for tenants, which had never been done in North America. And it was so expensive. And all the rebates and the tax credits that were being created in 2006 as we're starting to close and start construction about a year after the requirement had been put on, none of them are available to multifamily housing. And it was crazy. Like you could have a single family house and get rebates for solar, but you couldn't for an apartment complex or a condo development. So that was causing a financial crisis. And my uh, the company owner thought it was worth his time and my time for me to drive to Sacramento once a month and to be part of an advisory committee that was being formed to ask the Energy Commission of California to change the rebates to make them available for affordable housing. And in these meetings, which was super high-tier policymakers, the executive director, the you know director of that, the senior staff were all in this, this group to try to figure out apartment complex solar power. And I got so I got to meet cool folks, and I was chair of this little subcommittee because I was the affordable housing developer that was there. There was no one else that was an affordable housing developer. And then we're going through this issue of if you own a house and you put in solar on your roof, your utility bills drop, and then you can pay the cost of the solar rate. Like say you took a home loan out to put it in. $15,000 later, you're, you know that you're cost effectively installing it, but you need to have your utility bills go down in order for you to have money there to pay back the solar. But affordable housing, the way they had it set up, if the owner installed the solar and the utility bills went down, the owner couldn't in any way recoup the cost of putting in the solar. And it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening with nonprofits that wanted to do it. It wasn't happening with for-profits that could see a financial incentive. No one could do it because you can't give away 300000 to a million dollars when you're doing a development that's $10 million. That's not in the budget, even if you want to. So this resolution that we came to, which was building off of years of people trying to figure out how to value energy efficiency, yeah. was that we needed a special piece of software that would show what the utility bills would be with energy efficiency and solar, which had not existed anywhere. That wasn't happening, tragically. And we needed policy reform to allow rent to go up as utility bills went down. In affordable housing, rent plus utility allowance, the expected utility bills, those two numbers are regulated. Mm-hmm. And so we could in a regulated way, because we're like, we're plan checked, people watch everything you do, you can in a regulated way predict a lower utility bill, which allowed, like if you lower the utility bill by, utility bill by $30, you could raise the rent by $30. And that protects the tenants from seasonal high utility bills in the summer and the winter Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, they have a stable rent that's higher, and they have a stable utility bill that's lower. And this is actually more protective. And tenants over and over and over come to our affordable housing and say, I was getting $100 to $150 utility bills, even $300, and now they're $10 to $15. Thank you. <laughs> I'll take stable, higher rent for lower, highly variable utility bills because low-income households can't handle price shocks. They don't have savings and they have fixed incomes. And so when big bills come in the summer and the winter, that's the number one use of payday loans in California. And actually the whole nation is utility bills. People taking payday loans at 400% interest so they can pay bills in August. And they usually can't get them paid off for six months. That means they're still paying summer utility bills when they're trying to buy Christmas presents in the winter. And that's the second time they go out for payday loans is utility bills in the winter. 
And it just happens that this gets stuck in this vicious cycle of short-term loans to pay seasonally high utility bills. And then all of a sudden the utility bills represent this crazy expense to them with high interest rates, not like medium income households, low income households get hosed. Yeah. So this strategy of raising rent while they're lowering utility bills, it makes money for the developer. They do it voluntarily. It's a good business investment. And the tenants get huge amounts of financial protection out of it, even though they are essentially paying for it. But yeah. they pay for it in a stable way. Their, their utility bills become tiny and their rent becomes higher in a stable way. So they don't have these freakouts of using short-term loans. So with all these positive benefits, of it's positive because we develop it, it, we develop about five percent more apartments in developments that are zero net energy. All the money, by the way, stays in the development. It doesn't go to profit to the owner. Affordable housing—they're essentially just funding themselves. That's how this is working. But we are able to build five percent more apartments in zero net energy apartment complexes. So it's That's it's a winner. How did you uh, how did you get so passionate about <laughs> housing? You you obviously have a you're tied in here, Sean. You're obviously you're very compassionate and passionate about this. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of a tough question because I stumbled into affordable housing. I was a very earnest environmentalist and I was trying to figure out a way to do green building. Yeah. And affordable housing is where green building was incentivized. Like you get extra five points on your funding application. So there is this marriage between like my passionate interest in environmentalism, my background in business, like I studied economics, both my, both my parents own businesses and started those businesses. So I was like, I understand how important money is and how money flows. And I'm going to be a professional environmentalist and go work in some construction field and where what I'm bringing to the table is valued. And affordable housing valued it and uh, just to be clear, like, you know, I mentioned I, I'm, I'm a queer guy. You know, I'm married to, was married to a woman. I've got three kids, but I'm a queer guy. And that's what all the kids that I grew up with, as they were punching me, told me. And I became very passionate on the issue of how no one should be treated like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People who are, for, you know, people who are disadvantaged, um, be it because of the amount of melanin in their skin or because they weren't born into a wealthy family because, you know, in the United States, most wealth is inherited. Um, that these people shouldn't be treated poorly, badly. That shouldn't happen. So, I, you know, I, my personal background kind of marries into affordable housing well. But the truth is, is that I came into it as an environmentalist and and I'm also a decent human being who doesn't want people to live on the streets, just like almost everyone else. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing a lot about it. So I, I hat, hats off to you. What, what do you think that, that we've talked about the, this, the marginal cost that ain't a marginal cost anymore? Yeah. Um, what, what's the biggest challenge now with, with zero net uh, energy design? The biggest challenge now is that the investor owned utilities of California, which were funded essentially in 2014, uh, ALEC, which is an organization that writes laws for the Republican Party, and they, they, they'll write a law and then it'll get distributed to a whole bunch of states at once for different legislatures to pass. ALEC, which is heavily funded by the utilities, started making an argument that solar power was an unfair shift of benefits to the people with the solar and was costing other people. Now, in that math, of course, 
that did all sorts of funny stuff with the numbers. And that problem now has come to California where the Natural Resources Defense Council, heavily funded by utilities, just a couple of parties, utilities and NRDC, as opposed to hundreds of nonprofits who wait think, no, your math is wrong. The, the fact that you won't value the things that you think really should be valued, like for instance, air quality, um, which is called the societal cost test. The upshot of it is, is that our California regulators of utilities, the CPUC, they have devalued solar just a couple months ago. And so electrification, that often relies upon reducing utility bills with solar. That, that was the foundation because electricity prices are high in California. It's the highest rates in the United States. But therefore, solar is also the most valuable in California because it's making electricity. So they just attacked it because they're trying utilities. When you put solar on the roof, you reduce the amount of energy you're purchasing and also you're reducing the amount of infrastructure that's needed in society. Solar panels reduce the amount of big heavy duty wires that get installed. So you reduce the things that utilities make profit on. And the CP and the, these public utilities, you understand they're owned by Wall Street and they're controlled by Wall Street. And these are the masters of making money. And they know <laughs> that solar does not make them money. It loses them money. So just thrown everything at the wall, every bit of spaghetti, every bit of you know, campaign donations. And the, we have now got this upside down world in California where solar is worthless if you're exporting it, literally zero value. In San Diego Gas and Electric Territory, no value. In PG&E Territory, two cents a kilowatt hour. They're charging you 45 cents. So electricity you buy, 45 cents. Electricity you sell in, two cents. And they tried to also fine us 50 to $75 a month for having solar. So that's my challenge right now, is trying to make sure that solar is fairly valued because electrification is cheap and easy, but solar rapidly gets rid of the fossil fuels for your energy use and makes it cost effective, even in states where it might not be, like Wisconsin, where really it doesn't make sense to electrify because their policies are so upside down. They've got natural gas at dirt cheap prices and they, they mine it in Wisconsin. So you need solar in some, place, some states, you really do. So I feel like for a long time, people were excited about zero net energy then they got excited about electrification, which allowed them to forget about the zero net part of putting solar on the roof. And I feel like my challenge is to remind people these things go together. <laughs> Don't listen to the investor-owned utilities. Wall Street's not your friend. <laughs> Don't listen to them. <laughs> That's my challenge, keeping solar valuable. Right, right. And then they're just they're policy challenges. They're not technological challenges at all, right? No, this, this is being duped out in legislatures and governor offices at this point, not by building scientists. We've already proven that all electric is cheaper to build, that it decarbonizes faster than any other strategy, that it's a smart and wise thing to do. We've, we've staged that policy revolution in California. But um, yeah, it, it, this is now a political issue. How fast can we implement the knowledge that we have? That keep... So I, in 2017, my mother-in-law died in the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa. It was that, like the first big climate change fire that happened. And up until that point, there was a certain incrementalism that people were approaching the problem with that I became once again radicalized at that moment. Mother-in-law dying, you know, my wife's mom dying in a fire makes me very upset. 
again, I understand now this is like trees getting cut down that should not be cut down, old growth redwood trees. You're like that's illegal. Why is it being cut down? And so I tried to change the policy landscape in a way that the NRDC and some of the other laggards did not support in the early days. So when I went to Berkeley and I was speaking you know, with passion and, and tears in my eyes about my mother-in-law dying, and then the Paradise Fire just happened where 72 people died in flames. And one of them, I, like, I, this little girl moved in next door essentially and became friends with my kids. And she'd watch people die in their cars when she's being evacuated. And she didn't talk for six months when she moved here to anybody. So like, it is, there is not a technical challenge in front of us, and there has not been since 2014. That was the year when everything changed enough where it would be cost effective. And every year since then, we've been fighting a political battle. And so in 2019, when Berkeley agreed as a radical city to ban gas and new construction over the opposition of a number of environmental firms, or at least with their like, mm, we don't really want to touch that kind of approach to things. Some of them were leaders like Rocky Mountain Institute building decarbonization coalition. Those are folks who co-funded it and co-strategized to start something new and different, which is to have cities where democracy still works, respond to science for the sake of the public and pass bans and say like, we know it's not cheaper to put in gas, it's more expensive and we know that it's polluting us. So now what do we do? You, you stop it. And that really has been inspired by Europe, like Amsterdam, which banned gas and new construction in 2016 and Zurich, Switzerland, which banned it in 2011 in new construction. And they started, they said, there's going to be a retrofit plan that starts in 2015. And they have been, they've been electrifying whole districts of the city of Zurich, Switzerland. So anyway, I, to your point of like, no, there's not a technical challenge. There is a policy challenge at this point. This is a democracy issue. We, we have all the information we need, but we've proven it a gazillion times and the development community in general knows all electric is cheaper. Can we just break through the gas companies' misinformation campaigns that date back to the 1950s? You know, they knew that gas stoves were like cigarettes in 1972. I've read their internal documents that just got accidentally released essentially from an obscure library in Michigan. They knew in 1972 that gas stoves were just as bad as cigarettes for kids and adults. And ever since they've been lying to us, they have tons of work they did on test homes, tons of work they did with nitrogen dioxide sensors that they just hid and lied about to this very day. So everyone knows gas stoves are just like smoking cigarettes in your house. Every time you use a gas stove, it's about one pack of cigarettes that you put into the house of cigarette smoke. Cooked twice a day, that's two packs. That's supported by epidemiological evidence since 1995. And ever since we've been proving it over and over again, gas stoves are just like having cigarettes in your house. <laughs> oh, so yeah, never, you got to communicate better. Never thought of it that way. <laughs> hey, Sean, this has been a great conversation. I'm going to have to have you back. We have many more things to talk about, but but let's let's stop there. And thank you so much for being radicalized, and thank you for what you're doing, leading the charge, and um, we really appreciate it so much. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. And I'd love to come back to continue chatting about the good work that we need to do. So thank you. Thanks, Sean. Take care. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.